All right, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Liam McCollum Show. Uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning into the live stream. This is like my fifth episode going live, I think, and it's been going pretty well. Um, we're having some tech issues on both sides, actually. I'm, I'm having some Wi-Fi issues, so I might cut out a few times. But I just wanted to say before I bring in Scott Horton that I sincerely think that he's one of the most important people in the political and libertarian movement right now. Um, and also, I probably wouldn't be podcasting if it weren't for him, because when I was trying to start a podcast, like I emailed him and I didn't even have anything set up. And he said that he was going to come on my show next week. So I kind of had to scramble and put something together and did my first interview with him. It's been two years since then. So I've had him on like five times now. And um, here he is. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing great, Liam. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well. Um, yeah, like I said, thanks for always coming on. I A lot's been going on in the last, I think it's like a week now since Putin invaded Ukraine. A couple and, weeks, yeah, 10 days. Yeah, and, and man, like at the university, things are going crazy. Like I've been called a Russian asset like twice now by these neoliberal professors. And I don't know if you saw that. professors? That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's also like this New York Times article. I don't know if you saw it, but they said viral stories like the ghosts of Kiev are, are of questionable veracity, but they're a key part of Ukraine's war plan, experts say, as it tries to keep morale high. So I'm wondering <laughs> yeah. if, if you no can just like, minute. come on, it's pretty crazy. And I'm wondering yeah. if you can just like break down all of this propaganda and if you if you can actually see the truth out of it because really there are a lot of conflicting narratives and um it's hard to make sense of everything yeah man i mean i don't I almost don't know where to begin you know a guy yesterday i i, I wrote this incredibly overlong ridiculously overlong speech it's almost like a monograph or kind of a mini pamphlet or something about the history of this war it's at antiwar.com slash scott right now and it's the text of a speech that I read. It took me two hours. I did in Utah last Saturday. I'm doing it again in Kentucky this Saturday with more added stuff to it, if anybody could stand it. But one of the guys that tweeted it out, he said, man, this guy spares no one. It's fascinating. And I think, like, it really was one of the first times probably in this guy's life that he saw someone quite genuinely not give a good goddamn about Bill Clinton or W. Bush or Barack Obama or Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Just as happy to throw them all in the same burn pit. Don't give a damn about them. Don't favor them at all. Don't favor one or the other. Not Ronald Reagan, everybody else's hero either. Don't care. Not into that. Not a partisan. Not a partisan. I am an American. I, I'm on the side of my own country, obviously, because I got to live here and I want to die peacefully and, you know, in surrounded by the people that I love being prosperous and free and happy of old, old, old ass age in my late 80s sometime or something. Right. In peace and security and liberty, like in the American dream, how it's supposed to be. And look who's the biggest enemy of that, Liam. It's the government of the United States of America under Bill Clinton and W. Bush and Barack Obama and Donald Trump and Joe Biden this whole time. These people are the greatest enemies of liberty. And you can tell because just like in the other half of your question there, they lie all the damn time. They have to lie from morning to night about everything because 
they're criminals. The things that they're doing are wrong. And if they told you the truth about why they were doing them, then you would say, well, yeah, no, I don't think we need to do that then. And not just you, but the people of your town would say, this is crazy. And so, you know, we're stuck with these narratives, whether it's the ghost of Kiev garbage or in the larger context. And just think about these liberal professors going around like some dime store, tail gunner Joe. You ought to start mocking them to their face and calling them tail gunner Joe. I bet these professors would have to even Google that to even know that that's Joe McCarthy, the guy who went around and said, anybody who disagrees with the most right-wing narrative on the Soviet Union is an active commie agent of the Kremlin. All of you. And in fact, he was right about the guys in the State Department. There were quite a few who had been former members of the Communist Party, some of whom were still loyal to the Soviet Union. I'm sure what he, you know, ultimately his case was overblown, obviously, and he paid a price for that. He ended up going after an army dentist was like the last straw where they finally said enough of you. You know, if he had kept his eye on the prize at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and some things like that, maybe we would have had a little bit better time back then. He would have a better reputation today. But in America now, I mean, what do they even mean by that? To say like, geez, somehow you're a partisan of the Kremlin, Liam. Somehow you like their story. How contemptible of that. That would be one thing. But you work for Russia? And where do you get a job like that? Being a university student who goes and gets suborned into the FSB to go and ever tell Russia's side of the story. Uh, at the university, where you're supposed to be willing and able to debate anything in the world. Ask Thaddeus Russell how far you can take an argument over at the university. You know, last time those uh, words, even uh, his name ever leaves my lips. Um, you know, but, oh, tell the other side of the story in one of America's wars. You know, they have such a good track record lately, you know, or conflicts that we're involved in anyway. I should be more specific, but... Yeah, after everything has gone so well lately in all of America's foreign interventions, you know, they must be telling the absolute truth about this. And in fact, even just that there is no backstory that you need to know about. How about that for truth number one, according to the war party in America today? Well, you see, Putin, who's been in power for 20 years, you know, hardly interrupted when his own sock puppet, you know, took his place for a little while. Um, Dmitry Medvedev, you know, sat in his chair for a little while, but that was his right-hand man anyway. Um, here he's done this now, and that's because he's determined to recreate the Soviet Union. No, that couldn't possibly be right. You know, Condoleezza Rice says, yes, something has changed in Putin. He now has some kind of mental disorder. This guy that we used to say was okay. Gee, if you go back and check the old tapes of me on Meet the Press saying he's a partner of ours, that could be embarrassing. So I know what I'll do. I'll say that what happened was Putin now is the bad guy, whereas before he wasn't, he, he, turned, he turned bad is what he did. Uh, badness overcame him, and, um, and he revealed himself to be evil. Yeah, I know W. Bush looked in his soul and said he was a good man, but... This is a different Putin now. Are you on board for my narrative here? Are we making a lot of sense? There's no backstory you need to know 
about America's policy in Ukraine, Liam. The coup of 2014, where a neutralist party was overthrown in favor of pro-Westerners that immediately led to the loss of Crimea and a war in the East for the last eight years, that doesn't have anything to do with it. And if you say it does, then you work for the Russian government somehow. I mean, I would like to see some video of you stomping these professors into the ground. How about the terms of the debate are, after you win the debate in front of the rest of the crowd, then you get to be the professor and they have to sit there and shut the hell up and listen to you and learn a thing or two. The hell are they talking about? And I'm hearing from people in the LP about it too. Like I I didn't expect this, but I I have some friends who are more prags. um, And all I said was we should avoid going to war with Russia. Like that's all I said. And they said, oh, so you're, you're working for the Russians now. And, and these are people in the libertarian party. I mean, you know what the, I guess it was Karl Marx who said that history repeats itself. It's the first time it's tragedy. The second time it's farce. Like this is the Democrats weak ass imitation of the Bush regime 20 years ago, trying to pressure us all into attacking Iraq. Somehow the Bush people, I don't know, just it was more plausible to more people, I guess. This just doesn't seem to be sticking at all. And I think maybe because just the average guy knows Russia's got H-bombs. They never gave up their H-bombs. You know, they gave up some of them, but they kept some too. It's even the premise of Terminator 2, you know? Hey, aren't we friends with them now? Yeah, but they still have a bunch of H-bombs and Skynet figured that that'd be the best way is we could still get into a war with them. You know, everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. So then, you know, the otherwise panty-waisted little liberal professors at the university now are the toughest guys in America leading the war hawk charge. And the average Republican is going, yeah, I don't think so. You know? You look at the polls and it's like 20 something percent of Republicans say that something needs to be done about this. Now, the Republican Party leadership is all about it. The Republican Party votership is America first now. Enough of this. And the same people who told you you were a deplorable Ku Klux Klansman for the last 15 years, 12, you know, 10 years. Um, you know how unwelcome the entire right is inside their own country. Now we're supposed to follow the right wing is supposed to follow those people into war. Your liberal professor with his little turtleneck sweater and his welfare state plan is going to lead the charge into war. And he's going to play Joe McCarthy against a bunch of right wing tough guys who could kick his ass with one arm. (laughs) It just doesn't make sense, dude. It doesn't fit and it won't fit. It's not going to work. I mean, you look at it right now. It's easy to demonize a foreign enemy. But to convince Americans they're supposed to do anything about it? I mean, I don't know, dude. At the same time, it's true that no one ever went broke misunderstanding the stupidity of the American people, right? As W. Bush would have said it. So, you know, are there enough people who will believe whatever the hell they're told on CNN? I guess, you know, um, exactly what percentage that amounts to. I think it's less and less all the time, man. You know, I think it's less and less all the time. And the reality is this. For everyone who knows anything about this story at all, about what's been going on, for, in other words, people who are even just passingly familiar with foreign policy debates over the last 15, 20, 30 years, 
everybody knows that all along, some of the wisest, most respect, not by my terms, but by their terms, the most respected leaders of the centrist foreign policy establishment, the Council on Foreign Relations, Grand Poobahs, they all said not to do this. They all warned not to do this, to expand NATO even to Poland, Romania, and Hungary in the very beginning. Or pardon me, uh, it wasn't uh, Romania, it was uh, uh, that came later. It was uh, Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic in the first round. They said, don't do this. This is picking a fight with Russia for no reason. And this is, you know, I actually read a New York Times piece the other day that said a solid, like, supermajority, I forgot their words, but just the consensus inside the Defense Department and the State Department, circa 1998, 1999, was let's not do this. That was the official government at the time. Then he had the Secretary of Defense under Bill Clinton said we shouldn't be doing this. And he almost resigned over it. He should have. William Perry. Um, then you had all of the Cold War's hawks. George Kennan, who had coined the containment policy, and he had been less of a hawk in more recent times, but still he had invented the containment policy for the Cold War against the Soviet Union after World War II. His rival, Paul Nitsa, who had written NSC 68 and was the advocate of Soviet rollback. Containment isn't enough. We need to roll them back. By the way, of course, it was baiting them into overextension, which finally helped to crush them. So they were both wrong. But anyway, uh, these two hawks. And then uh, you had Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense during Vietnam. You had uh, Edward Lutwak and Richard Pipes, who were two hardcore. I think Lutwak was a neocon. I think Pipes was always a right winger, but both of them hardcore right wing anti-Soviet guys, um, at cold, ardent Cold Warriors. Um you know, I'd mentioned Pat Buchanan and Ron Paul, but they're so good that people like want to dismiss them. You know what I mean? So I'm going for like, guess what? H.W. Bush's closest friend, Brent Scowcroft, General Brent Scowcroft, H.W. Bush's national security advisor. The guys who were in the chair when they ended the Cold War, they said we should not be doing this. H.W. Bush is, look, when Brent Scowcroft speaks on an issue like that, he is speaking for H.W. Bush. The same as when he wrote, don't attack Saddam in the Wall Street Journal in October 2002. That was a message to the boy from the father delivered by Brent Scowcroft, his most closest trusted guy, told Bill Clinton, we should not do this. All of these guys warn him, and including Bill Bradley, who was a Russia expert in the Senate, a Democrat, but still you know, a real expert. You had uh, Sam Nunn and Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who had been, was a neoconservative, former leftist turned right-wing, ardent, anti-Soviet Cold Warrior type. I don't know if he was a trot. I think he was a trot. So, right, like a lot of these neocons were former Trotskyites, but they were Americans, first of all. And second of all, they were trots. So they hated the Stalinist Soviet Union because in their eyes, if only Trotsky had come to power after Lenin, then everything would have been wonderful or whatever kind of thing, right? So they had their own grudge with the Soviet Union. And then when they turn into right-wingers, it was just convenient, you know, that they already had this hardcore anti-Soviet take anyway. So um, all of these people said we should not be doing this. The Hawks, Hawks. And they did it anyway. And they did it as we know the history. They, they did it for the Lockheed dollars and the Polish votes. That's why they did it. For narrow, unenlightened interests of the Democratic Party. You know, I guess Republicans, too, in the Senate, they want to, you know, Newt Gingrich in the House and the 
his the Senator Trent Lott and his guys in the Senate, they wanted to brag about this, that they had done it too. Uh, you know, to collect the votes from, you know, uh, Poles and Czechs and Hungarians in the United States. Because that's a percent or two, depending on which state you live in, you know. Um, and so that was why they did it. And they did it over the best advice of all these men. And 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 when I say that all of these luminaries warned against it, they use the strongest possible terms that you can come up with. You can read them in my speech where I quote them directly. They say this is the absolute worst possible policy error that you could make in, you know, history. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of the way that they were saying it. You know, that's their equivalent of cursing and stomping their feet. It's saying just, you know, George Kennan said... I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen. The people who say this isn't directed against Russia, the Russians won't mind. It's all just fine. We'll just expand NATO, our military alliance, into their former sphere of influence. But it won't be against them. And so they, it'll be cool. Totally don't worry about it. When the Russians react, as I'm warning you right now, they're going to, then these same people are going to say, see, that's how the Russians are. And that's why we need NATO as our defensive alliance to protect from Russian aggression. And then Kennan, George freaking X Kennan, said, but that is just not right. Like, come on, man. Now you want to tell me 30 years later when his prediction comes exactly perfectly true that that doesn't have anything to do with it? I saw earlier today, you can check on the antiwar.com blog. There's a symposium thing, an online thing with John Mearsheimer, who is the dean of the realist school of foreign policy in the United States of America at the University of Chicago right now. He and his buddy Stephen Walt at Harvard are considered the leaders of the realist school, the real politique, Kissingerian, great power politics school of American foreign policy. And he's saying all of this exactly like me. He sounds like me. And it's not because he's a radical it's just, or a libertarian. He thinks we should be focused on China, for Christ's sake. He's a hawk. But he's just saying, look, this is America's fault. I warned you, I warned you, I warned you, I warned you, I warned you for 25 years straight and 30 years straight. And then exactly what I told you would happen would come true, came true. And now here we are. And he said, I'm astounded that in American foreign policy circles, that they are able to say with a straight face is kind of stick with this narrative that NATO expansion has nothing to do with it. Like an email went out. This is your talking point. NATO expansion has nothing to do with it. Well, of course it does. Not only did the American graybeards predict this reaction would happen, but the Russians did too. <laughs> Vladimir Putin himself said this is an existential threat to Russia. Please believe me when I tell you that's how I feel about it. 10-4, Roger Dodger, do you copy? Over and out. Hello, is this thing on? He said in 2004 and in 2007 and in 2008 and in 2011 and in 2014. Like, look, guys, you're essentially like at least de facto kind of bringing Ukraine into NATO here. And I'm telling you, as he told the Italian diplomat in 2014, I could be in Kiev in two weeks. You want to try me? I'm telling you, you can't have Ukraine. So back off. Back off over and over and over again. Now, here's the dean of the realist school of foreign policy at the University of Chicago is telling you, Liam, yeah, okay, forget all this crap about history began today. 
when Putin rolled out of the wrong side of the bed in the morning and bumped his head and is in a bad mood and decided that now he wants to be Stalin and reconquer all of Eastern Europe because of how bad and evil he is, how black the hat that he wears is. That's stupid, childish crap. That's not fit for college freshmen. That's not fit for junior high, okay? The reality is America is the world empire. And as you may have noticed, George W. Bush and Barack Obama especially, but yeah, I mean, really W. Bush, blew America's entire wad in the Middle East. We spent 20 years killing 2 million people for the cost of $10 trillion. And they blew their military and political and economic hegemony over the planet. It is now waning. Forget libertarianism has nothing to do with it. America's great power status ebbed and now it's flowing back. Okay, or is it the other way around? I'm not good at vocabulary words and stuff, but you understand what I mean. America's sphere of influence stretched all the way to Russia's borders. Now it's receding back again, which is the natural order of things at, at the very least in the sense of the the flow back after overextension. Now, I'm a Ron Paul guy. We should have never tried it. There's no reason in the world why just because America was rich that they should have been the dominant power over the old world. And even if you thought, yeah, but the commie emergency in the name of the Cold War against the Soviet Union, which dominated all of Eastern Europe at the time and was bristling with tens of thousands of nukes and run by madmen like, you know, name them, uh, Stalin and Khrushchev and all the rest of them. I don't know who was between Khrushchev and Andropov. I don't, I don't memorize them all. But anyway, um, even if you say it was worth it then, we'll look at Pat Buchanan, right-wing Republican nationalist, said, okay, Soviet Union's over. That's it. Let's abolish NATO and come home. Normal country in a normal time. You guys promised now. The world empire was just for the duration of the emergency. But the emergency's over. We made friends with the Chinese communists 50 years ago. You know, 20 years, 15, 20 years before the fall of the Soviet Union, we were already friends with the Chinese. Now the Soviet Union doesn't even exist at all. So that's it. Time to abolish NATO and come home. That's my position. But I'm just saying, if you're an imperialist, if you are a realist from the great power politics school of how these things work, then you understand that as Matt Taibbi wrote the other day, he goes, there's no point in bickering about NATO expansion. There was no way they were going to not try it. That was the way he put it. So it's not even worth bringing up, kind of, which I disagree with that. But I, it's fair, though, right, when he says, look, we're talking about the Clintons and the Bushes and the, you know, Cheney and these people. It's, they weren't going to not try it, right? They're going to extend their influence, their power and influence, their military alliance as far as they can possibly push it. Um, so, but now here we are. And we come right up against it where another great power has said, you've crossed our red line. And now it has to recede back again. You know, none of this is a moral justification for what Putin is doing. We're talking about a game of risk. We're talking about we're we're talking about John Mearsheimer, right? Who is not, you know, immoral in any way, he cares about what's happening here. Listen to the way he talks about the stuff. But these this, we're talking about from the level of strategic thinking. Not just like, oh, did you see the latest headline that a shell went off and a person was hurt? Like, we all know that's part of the war, right? But the question is, from the point of view of strategic thinkers and strategic planners, you know, 
we're expanding America's influence. Now it's coming back again. Even Robert Kagan, Victoria Newland's husband, Bill Clinton's Bill Clinton, um, pardon me, Bill Crystal's co-author of Toward a Neo-Reaganite Foreign Policy, uh, advocating for benevolent global hegemony back in 1996, and one of the major ringleaders of the neoconservative movement that got us into Iraq War II. He wrote a thing in the Washington Post last week, Liam, where he goes, listen, man, the unipolar moment is truly over. That's Kagan talking. That's the older brother Kagan talking. The unipolar moment is over. We are entering a new era where it looks like, yeah, Russia is going to again be the dominant power in Far Eastern Europe. And China is going to be the dominant power in the Eastern uh in Eastern Asia, in the Pacific. And he says, now the question is, will the, can the Americans and their allies, will they find this tolerable? Well, I mean, you just said it's the fact, Jack. So what do you mean tolerable? What are we going to do? Launch H-bombs at them? No, they also have H-bombs. Consider me deterred. What are we supposed to do about it? that the Chinese dominate the South China Sea and that Russia dominates the Ukraine. I mean, even to ask the question is to answer it. It's none of our damn business. I bet you most Americans thought Ukraine was part of Russia anyway. Now it's the world's greatest crisis. Um, You know, I saw... Max Abrams. I never can remember if he's from Northwestern University or Northeastern University or I don't know. He's at one of these universities. He's really great on Syria and stuff. And he had this, he's good, uh, sarcastic Twitterer. And he wrote on Twitter a couple weeks ago, he says, oh, I'm now learning that Kiev is the heart of Europe, not Berlin, not Paris, not Rome, not London, Kiev. Is the heart of, not even Warsaw, right? Kiev is the heart of Europe. Get the hell out of here with this. Who makes this crap up? No, it's not the heart of Europe. It's the western flank of Russia is what it is. You know, um, it sure as hell is not America's eastern frontier. I mean, poor old Garrett Garrett's rolling over in his grade, man. You read um, Defend America First. The uh, essays of Garrett Garrett in the uh, Chicago Tribune from the 1930s and 40s trying to keep us out of the World War, where he's saying, how the hell do you figure France is America's eastern frontier? Like, I know you say that, but it's not really, is it? (laughs) You know, that's just like a turn of phrase that you guys made up. It's not real. Now we're supposedly, you got a, a good map of Europe in your head, at least the major states, right? You Spain, France, Germany, Poland, Ukraine. This, this ribbon of these giant states as you go east here um, that take up, uh, you know, the majority or, or, you know, much of the space of Europe as you go across. Um, just think about how far even Lviv in the far west of Ukraine is. It's on the other side of Slovakia, Slovenia, and Romania from here. You know, when those are on the far side of Croatia and Bosnia and Serbia and Kosovo, okay? This is far, far, far Eastern Europe. 
This is not our sphere of influence. And it's a simple matter of just Monroe doctrine politics. Same thing that Mearsheimer will tell you. Same thing that Ted Carpenter and Doug Bondo, our great geniuses at antiwar.com and from Cato Institute, will tell you that... Um, uh, what the hell was I going to say? <laughs> that uh, I started naming other great people who would also tell you the same thing, and I forgot what the same thing was. Um, anyway, yeah, they're just they, uh, somewhere along the lines that they pushed their damn luck too far, Liam, and that was what it was. And now, let me say one more rant and tangent here, as long as I'm ranting and tangent. I think the reason that I didn't think it was going to happen was just because I wasn't thinking hard enough. I was too distracted, too many other things. And frankly, like I was being naive, even after all we've been through, you know, I try not to be an alarmist and a truther and all that because alarmism and trutherism is almost always half-baked and overshot and wrong, you know? So I learned my lessons from that when I was a lot younger, you know, about what I was sure was true that turned out wasn't kind of thing. So, but that, I'm biased too far the other way, especially for the subject matter that, you know, is, is my job here. But I now think more and more that they really wanted this war to happen. And that's what I was missing, was in all of their warnings that Putin, you better not do it and all that, that maybe on one level they were trying to dissuade him, but at least their plan B and maybe in operation at the same time was essentially to provoke the conflict and use the Ukrainians as the poor schmucks stuck in the middle. Uh, to be used and abused in a proxy war here. And the reason I say that is because, well, one thing is I went back, I found some things from not just January, but from December in the New York Times and in Foreign Affairs and a couple other things about, yeah, man, we could do an insurgency here. And you look at all the training that the CIA and the Rangers and whoever have been doing of Ukrainian forces there. That's not all just about fighting in the East. That's all to be stay behind forces in the event of a Russian invasion. And the thing is, they talk about it so much in so many different places. And even the Brits talked about it, too. You got Boris Johnson blabbing about it to The Guardian or at some meeting that The Guardian reported it, um, where you get the idea that, yeah, they really wanted this to happen, you know, when there's enough of them. And two of the final straws for me on that. I mean, I'll, I should say the New York Times version says very explicitly, we really don't want them to invade and we're really trying to stop them. But if they do, we're planning this, right? Fair enough. I don't know. But here's the thing that makes me doubt that. Uh, I mean, it's, it's an inference, okay? It's not like solid. And maybe we'll find out, we'll, maybe we'll get some good solid quotes where they admit it later that like, yeah, we were knowingly trying to increase the uh, the likelihood that they would invade. I mean, they like to brag and boast about their crazy schemes, these people, a lot of times. So that's almost a direct quote about how they talked about the Russians in Afghanistan. Yeah, we knowingly increased the likelihood that they would, you know, this kind of talk. So, um, but here's the thing. It's Hillary Clinton just blabbing and blabbing and blabbing. Sound like Scott Horton. They put her on MSNBC and they just let her go and she just won't stop. But what she's saying is, yeah, and we'll put in the weapons and we'll give them the weapons and they'll use the weapons to kill the Russians and we'll give them anti-armor and we can give them, you know, everything. And she's just blabbing and blabbing and blabbing about it in a way where it's like, if you were her handler, you'd have been like, hey, okay, that's enough. You know what I mean? Like, she's just going off about it. And in fact, I gotta say, 
that it's just as a parenthesis here. It's a parenthesis to her, the entire war on terrorism. She talks about the success of the war against the Russians in Afghanistan in the 1980s. And she goes, eh, of course, there were some unintended consequences. But anyway, here's how we could do this in Ukraine. Blah, 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 blah. Like, you know, they, they built the World Trade Center when her and her husband had been in power for a month and a week. It was, you know, 29 years ago, last Saturday was, was the World Trade Center bombing. Al-Qaeda attacked all through the 1990s. Her and her husband backed them anyway. Then as a senator, she voted for Bush's wars, all of them. You know, everything that he did and including Iraq War II, which was, of course, Jihadi University for the entire west of Iraq during that whole war for the predominantly Sunni areas there. And then she became secretary of state after losing Obama. And the first thing she does is take Al-Qaeda's side in Libya and Syria in a policy that ends up leading to the rise of the Islamo Caliphate crap under Baghdadi that had always been crazy war propaganda of W. Bush and Glenn Beck that here became true due to her efforts that then required the launching of Iraq War III to then destroy the caliphate again. You're talking about... And, and never even mind Afghanistan and Pakistan, the drone war in Yemen that turned into the civil war due to her regime change against Abdullah Saleh in 2012, again, as she, when she was Secretary of State. She's been riding shotgun or driving for the whole terror war long. For the terrorist war against us, our, and, and hell, Bill Clinton should, should never go without saying, back the terrorists in Bosnia, Kosovo, and in Chechnya as well in the 1990s, even as they were attacking us that whole decade long, that whole administration long. And they continued to provoke them the whole time too by supporting Israel and bombing Iraq from bases in Saudi Arabia. So, you know, she's been involved absolutely up to her eyeballs, this woman, in every bit of this, this whole time, up until she lost to Trump was, you know, when she quit having a hand on the wheel here, but she's been involved in this the whole time. 10 trillion blown. Two million people killed, 37 million people driven from their homes, 37 million people driven from their homes. The worst refugee crisis since World War Two. You know, American special operations forces fighting and killing from Nigeria to the Philippines for 20 years. And this to her is, yeah, you know, there are some unintended consequences. But anyway, let's arm some Nazis in Ukraine. Let's give them javelins and stingers. And she just goes off. And you can tell this isn't just her musing and daydreaming. She's been discussing this with her people all along. And there's a quote from her former like advisor who was going to be, I think, her secretary of defense, James Stratavis. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. He's an admiral who's the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO forces in Europe. And he's horrible and everything. And there's great quotes of him talking about this too. So that's very good reason to believe she's been discussing this with policy planners. That this is what we can do in Ukraine. And may even, you know, some of the planning may even go back to when she was in office um, as Secretary of State. And then there was a quote from CBS News where, oh man, I'm sorry, we're out of time. Um, it, the lady said that... Um, she didn't say who, but it was implied it was the Pentagon or CIA told lawmakers today that they expect a 10 to 15 to 20 year war and that eventually Russia would lose. In other words, they've been planning and planning and planning this and they have no desire whatsoever, Liam. You don't hear out of all these trial balloons about, yeah, let's wage a neo-Nazi terror war against these guys on the side of the terrorists against Russia and bog them down and bleed them to bankruptcy and repeat Afghanistan on them and all these things. 
you don't hear them say, we've got to come to the table and hammer out a decent deal to end this conflict. Joe Biden must send his secretary of state directly to Moscow to sit down with Sergei Lavrov and achieve peace at any cost right now before this gets worse. You don't hear that at all. You hear that from antiwar.com. But everybody at the Atlantic Council thinks and that the Council on Foreign Relations is just licking their chops to repeat Afghanistan, Liam. I think we'll just leave that right there, boy. Everybody just meditate on that for a little while this afternoon, all right? And I'm sorry I have to run, dude. I'm late for my next one. But you're great, dude. Thank you so much for putting up with me and, and especially tolerating me being late and everything like that today. Yeah, of course. I just want to say one more thing. Um, there's this really great tweet by my friend, Ethan Holmes. He actually writes for Sputnik News, um, and he's been great on this. I've had him on my show a couple of times, and he tweeted out, I don't want to see a multipolar world order because I hate the West, but rather because I love it. Those who most sincerely criticize the West's present iteration are those who care most about its future ones. Just wanted to say that before we head out, and thanks for coming on, man. I always appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, Liam, for having me, man.